<laughs> Welcome back to Big Geeky Headquarters, the mirror universe of Big Nerdy Headquarters. Well, tonight we're discussing alternate realities. Uh, no, really, it's Big Nerdy Questions. This is Josh. Welcome back. And tonight we're going to be talking about how our favorite franchises and other favorite works have played with their realities, be it real history or the realities they've established. And just how different are those realities? Are they better or worse uh, than the ones that we typically know and love? Tonight, we have a very special guest joining us to talk about this. The man who created an entirely new alternate universe for World War II, featuring super beings known as the Outbreak Babies, Jay Sandlin. Welcome to Big Nerdy Headquarters. Hey, what's up, guys? Glad to be here. B&Q, represent. Woohoo! Uh, and I will be talking to Jay a little bit more about his book, Outbreak Mutiny, in a few minutes, but I also want to welcome the rest of our panel. Ed, welcome to the show. So I typically rock a goatee. Does that mean I'm the evil version? Uh, going by South Park, the goatee could be the good version, so you never know. This is true. Hi, everyone. <laughs> uh, JP, you are finally back from the Barney fan con where you were signing autographs to, when you gave Barney Thor's hammer. Did you run into any young fans? Uh, I, I think you have the alternate JP. I, I, I said he couldn't have it, and I never made a single joke the entire time. <laughs> I, I, I heard you gave the keynote speech. Uh, I don't know what to tell you, but no, of, of course. Uh, it's definitely a pleasure to finally... Uh, well, you know their slogan. It's the only kids' conference where you can buy a BJ. Whoa. <laughs> and we're done. Good night. <laughs> we're, we're starting off on the left foot tonight. Let's do it. Yeah, we've, we've, we've been canceled from the internet, guys. <laughs> and uh, welcome it. back, uh, Matt. It's been a couple of weeks. We are glad that you are back aboard uh, as my uh, partner in crime. And I believe you have acquired a sponsor for the evening. As a matter of fact, I have. Tonight's episode is brought to you by The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. Do not attempt to adjust your podcast. We are in control. Yes. If I ran the Twilight Zone, it wouldn't be any different, would it? <laughs> Rod Serling full of puns, although that was our, uh, when we did the Mount Rushmore of television, that was our meme for the week, was just Mount Rushmore, or, sorry, Rod Serling full of puns, so nothing different there. If I ran the Twilight Zone, Harry would have stabbed him before he started to sparkle. Nice. Well done, sir. Uh, and... Our big nerdy recommendation tonight uh, is actually what we're going to be spending the first uh, good chunk of the show on, uh, because our big nerdy recommendation is, in fact, Jay's novel, Outbreak Mutiny, Alternate History with Superheroes. Uh, if you haven't read Outbreak Mutiny yet, if you like superhero stories, if you like history, historical fiction, if you like a good yarn with a plenty of mystery, great characters... You owe it to yourself to go out and find uh, this uh, novel. And, Jay, I wanted to start with the fact that you and I are both his trained historians. Uh, how does that play into the creation of an alternate world set in kind of our equivalent of World War II era? Well, just like you said, uh, we are big history nerds, and I think I approached it from the idea that if superpowers were somewhat common, you know, maybe 5% or 10% at most of the population, what would the world be like? And I came to the conclusion that there would be still tyrants, dictators, and uh, all these characters that would basically weaponize and utilize the abilities of the outbreak babies, uh, people that I call the super, you know, the superheroes. In our timeline, we had the baby boom, in the alternate timeline I made, they had the outbreak baby boom, and that was the manifestation of superpowers in the population. I, I basically feel like they would have been weaponized. They would have been tried to, you know, be used as a resource, just like uh, you know, slaves or any other um, minority. Which is the market that uh, the equivalent of Germany has set up, the flesh market. Uh, yeah, the flesh, the flesh stock. stock trade. Yes. So Germany has fallen. America has fallen, and. Through the ash from the ashes of Germany, and uh, you know the end of World War One or the Great War, because there was no World War Two in my alternate timeline. Um, after the Treaty of Versailles, Germany uh, reorganized under the worst of the outbreak babies and became an empire known as the Reich or Rule, and they rolled over Europe 
And uh, spoiler alert, I kill off America like a red shirt Star Trek in the prologue chapter. Wow. He we does. don't even make it through the prologue. You don't even make it through the prologue. Yeah. Really, Roy Jenkins. America is <laughs> the Brooklyn brawler of this novel. It is a jobber extraordinaire. Oh. Yes, yes. and for our modern-day listeners, that might be like uh, Heath Slater or Kurt Hawkins. I don't exactly. Know. It's okay. not, not a good thing. This guy, this guy with all the wrestling, this is great. Let's keep going. <laughs> Heck yeah, I know the wrestling. I mean, yeah, and I, I even call um, the character on the front cover there. If you want to hold it up, um, Atlas, the fellow in the overalls, uh, he goes by the nickname the People's Champion. <laughs> nice. Of course, the originator of the People's Champion was Muhammad Ali in our timeline. That's where The Rock picked up the nickname uh, with Ali's approval. I'll add. But in my timeline, I think Atlas is going to be the, the originator of the name. I love the fact that your most powerful character, Atlas, and that's not a spoiler because he looks most powerful on the cover, is someone who is fighting for more than just, you know, the good of everybody. He's fighting for a cause because he's from the South, and you've set up the South as being under the control of the equivalent of the clan, the Grand Wizard. We don't get a lot of that in this book. I'm setting that up for later, but you can see the map in the uh, opening pages where mm-hmm. I've redivided the lines. Now, that's after America Falls. Um, they divide up the North American continent into territories. Um, you've got the South is taken over, like you said, by the Grand Wizard, who's a warlord of the Reich. Then you've got New Reich Mania. It's ruled by a guy named Warlord Bones. And America's just left right there in the middle states. Do you, do you guys remember Mimal in school? Ever learning about yes. Mimal? Yes. Ah, yes. We're we're the Mimals. That's all that's left. It was mm-hmm. a joke about geography, but now it's the the uh, identity of these people who have a very tough life now. <laughs> in the capital, it's lovely Des Moines, Iowa. So if you are in Des Moines, Iowa, you are in a very important city. Right. A good portion of the story takes place in the new capital. And then the West, um, well, I'll, I'll let you describe it because uh, <clears throat> for all of our, we have a lot of listeners in California. And what kind of world would they be living in if they were in your world, if they still lived in California? I don't think it's pleasant. Nothing good. I mean, it's basically like a Mad Max kind of society overrun by these um, failed experiments called the Misshapen. Um, the, the Reich has a uh, class of scientists who their only job is to weaponize the outbreak babies into shaped beasts. Some of those fail, and some of those go out of control, and they're called the misshapen, and they've essentially overrun the western part of the United States. So to our west, we have the misshapen. To our east, we have the Reich. And then to the bottom, we have the waters of uh, Hades Hallway, the former Gulf of Mexico, that's where the slave ships are looking for flesh stock to add to the slave markets. So, yeah, it's looking pretty rough for our people left in the remnant. One of the best things I enjoyed about the the origins of the superheroes, or the outbreak babies in this uh, universe, the symptoms or manifestations of being a superhero don't just come to the surface like in Marvel or DC at a certain time or because of a specific cause – they only come to the surface if they're needed because you're facing mortal peril. So exactly. if a person lived in the remnant and like grew up in Des Moines, went to the office job, they might not re- know they ever have a power ever. That's exactly right. You, you almost have to die to get your powers because the power comes in response to a need and not a want. Um, that's why, um, you know, if you live, well, just like you said, if you live a humdrum life, you know, that's the term I use for people without superpowers, the humdrums. You might never know that you were really a latent. Uh, latents are people who have the potential to become outbreak babies, and the power still rests beneath the surface. But the Reich is obsessed with finding out who's a latent and putting their powers to use. Which I absolutely love, because that means that any character you introduce, even if they are a humdrum, you may find out later in the series might have a special ability. It's a... It's always interesting to find you, you, out. Um, so. You just said it. You just said it. Who's it going to be? That's exactly, exactly right. <laughs> uh, so as a history geek, one of my favorite parts of the novel is actually in the prologue where we find out what happened to the Maine. USS uh, Maine, yes. Yeah, so yes. 
because that's one of the parts of history it's always like the war that happened because of a, an accident that was blown up in yellow journalism but you provide an explanation so do you yeah, like it was a it was a beautiful woman with heat vision yes <laughs> Uh, do you like peppering in those little answers to historical questions in this alternate um, universe? Yes, I'm kind of obsessed with it. In fact, the first draft of this book, um, I had some great beta readers, uh, which in my opinion is always a great thing for a writer to have. And the betas all told me that the first draft was incredibly tedious because all I did was throw in these minute historical references that nobody but you and me would get. <laughs> so I, I had to trim it way down. But the broad strokes stayed, and I think that was what was important were the big ones like the main. Because uh, that's going to be very important uh, later on in this, the series. And this is an ongoing series, by the way. Yeah, I um, can't wait for the next novel. Uh, and I was actually going to ask you, you know, uh, we have this amazing first chapter, and it ends on a cliffhanger. I'm not going to spoil what it is. It's actually a bunch of things happening in that last scene. Uh, should we expect another novel soon in this series? Yeah, I'd say about the same time uh, this one was released next year, so that's about April or May. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and one last thing about uh, asking about the novel. I would say that the theme, the slogan, clearly comes out th comes throughout, Live Free or Die in Chains. Uh, what does that mean to you both as an author, and uh, is that is that more than just in this book? Is that more of a philosophy? Because I feel like that's a really important thing to believe. All right, so that did come from my study of uh, slavery, and it came from the idea that in this society, in this alternate history, everyone knows that the choice is clear. You can either die in freedom or you can live your life in chains. And when the time comes, what are you going to choose to do? So when the characters, the outbreak babies, are faced with that choice, um, that's when the chips are down. You find out who they really are, where their priorities are, and which way they're going to go. And that's going to keep on being a theme, you know, because everybody is either going to be a slave or they can decide that, you know, give me liberty or give me death, basically. Uh, Patrick Henry's infusion into the work. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, Atlas kind of said it best, though. He's got the idea, and uh, I, I know that I've been with a three-year-old all day, so we've been watching the movie Trolls a lot. But um, I don't know if you uh, – the, the king troll that uh, runs yes. around naked, no troll left behind. My nieces <laughs> love that film. I've seen it yeah. multiple times. Yes, no trolls left behind. That, that's the idea, though, the heroes. It's the idea that we live – we live – yeah, excuse me. We leave no one behind to live in chains. So, so it, it, you know, if you are going to be a hero, you've got to decide that your freedom is more important than your life and that the lives of others are more important than your own. Well put. I did just think of one more question. Your Please. podcast is Who Would Win? My new podcast, uh, yeah, you can search for that on iTunes and Google Play. It's hashtag Who Would Win. And uh, that's me and a uh, fellow author, James Gavsey. We debate uh, battles between superheroes. We just did Daredevil and Bane. Ooh, good one. So I've got to ask this one question. You don't, if it's planned in a later, later novel, don't say it. Okay. Who would win, Okinawa Dragon or Alcatraz? Oh, that's that. I don't actually have any plans for that. So I don't feel like Alcatraz could necessarily beat the dragon. But I also don't feel like either one could really stop the other. Um, Alcatraz is kind of based on the Jewish golem. He's a big guy made from the stone walls of the prison. And he can, you know, he's probably about eight to nine feet tall. Uh, he takes orders from an old Spanish priest that either hangs out on his shoulder or inside his chest cavity. So the Okinawa dragon would be able to... I'm going to have to say Dragon, because Dragon has the fighting skills that would be able to take him down. He also has a sword that is made from a metal called the Starforged that can essentially cut through anything like vibranium or adamantium. So taking that into account that Starforged could easily cut the granite, um, yeah, Dragon would take him down. He would just have to avoid him, because even though Dragon's scales are pretty tough, He's still susceptible to internal injuries, you know, just like Luke Cage or 
uh, those other, you know, really heavy hitter guys. It would be entertaining, though, to see, especially if the Dragon was up against the whole Chi-Town 4. Yeah, well, the Chi-Town 4 has got to do some regrouping after they uh, do. issue number 3, as you read. Yes. In uh, Sewer Storm is that chapter. You, you uh, mentioned in your email that you liked Alcatraz, and you were one of the first people to single him out, actually. What, what made you single Alcatraz out? I, I like the idea of a character who... Um, can be can move the plot along so well because he is so so strong like the Hulk, but he's completely susceptible to whoever imprints on him. So he can be the ultimate pawn. And if someone were to come in and remove the Padre, and let's say Dragon actually becomes the man in control of Alcatraz, whole new ballgame. Uh, so he, even though he's alive and a human, he is the walking weapon of the war. And yeah. I find that fascinating. I also find it fascinating to think what is buried in that brain. Is there anything left where he's like, does he have any free will left? Or is it kind of like, um, I don't know if you watch Stargate, where a ghoul possesses a human or anything like that, where it's possessed by a host. I, so it's really fascinating to think of what's going on in that brain, if anything. I, w- I would have to say, I, I, it's not a spoiler, I would say that I kind of spelled it out this book there's nothing really left and i don't know if you caught the reference but the person he once was was an actual uh, historical gangster uh, machine gun kelly yes who was a a legit bank robber i I borrowed him from history and stuck him in the story as becoming alcatraz on his execution day that was his manifestation when he was in the old electric chair his powers came out poor timing oops (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, yeah, I hope this conversation has convinced our listeners that Outbreak Mutiny is the ideal work for our listener community here in Big Nerdy Headquarters. Uh, it's got history, superheroes, supervillains, amazing battle scenes, characters that you will root for and characters that you will hate but you will love to hate. Uh, so please go and order the Outbreak Mutiny off of your favorite book site of choice. Uh and I, the cover is beautiful, and it feels nice to your hands. I love the print version, but you can also do the digital version as well. Uh, it is well worth the effort. And yeah, thank you, I'll just Jay, throw for out, producing it's, it. Um, it's actually it's on Amazon right now. Um, that's where you can pick it up. It's on paperback, and the ebook edition is only ninety nine cents. There you go. So if you want the ebook version, ninety nine cent. It's worth it. It's the cost of. It's less than the cost of your frappa frappuccino, and it's. It's pleasure is more long-lasting. I'm just telling you. Uh, so go out there and get Outbreak Mutiny uh, by Jay Sandlin. That is our official big nerdy recommendation. So because Outbreak Mutiny is an alternate history of the early or the first half of the 20th century, we thought it would be awesome to look at how our other franchises have established alternate realities to what they normally uh, do. Uh, so this can be a franchise that has messed with the real historical timeline or has messed with their own established canon. Uh, there's a lot of possibilities out there. I'm sure a lot are going through your head. We're going to go in turn and talk about each one and why they stand out to us as really great examples. And at the end, of course, we'll pick our favorite alternate reality. Uh, and Ed, because we are... This week, celebrating the release of a certain film, I believe your entry is a great one to kick us off with. So you have the floor. Okay. Uh, You know, one of the great things about being on this show is getting to talk about uh, works that I'm really passionate about. And if there's one franchise that I love almost as much as Star Wars, if not equally, it's the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. The, uh, The Dark Tower is set in a world that's very similar to our own, uh, except it's post-apocalyptic and kind of resembles the Old West. It's more like a Sergio Leone uh, Western starring Clint Eastwood than, like, you know, the typical fantasy like Lord of the Rings. This, uh, This entry might be a little bit different than everyone else's because bulk of the story is actually set in All World, which is where the main character Roland is from, and he draws people to his world from a world very resembling, very much resembling our own. And uh, one of the uh, the great things about it is you can tell the uh, the similarities and you know parallels between his world and our world 
there are you know little hints and nods things that might be considered myth here are you know led to believe to be fact there for instance arthur like king arthur was a an actual person in that reality and the metal from the sword excalibur was used to to be forged to make roland's guns and uh you know stuff bleeds through like the song from the beatles hey jude is played in honky tonks there in that world and then uh you know, Matt will like this one. There's some characters in the fifth novel called the Wolves who look exactly like Dr. Doom from uh, Marvel <laughs> Comics. But the catch is their weapon of choice is another nod to another author that Stephen King loves. Their weapon of choice is the Golden Snitch from Harry Potter, <laughs> except it's like except it's like a razor blade on wings. And when you get hit with that thing, the outcome's not very good. <laughs> so... Uh, the parallels there are great. And another reason that I think that this is a good, you know, choice, uh, you know, to be considered, Roland doesn't even see our world until the second novel. He comes through and gets a look at what our world is like. So with stuff that we are familiar with, he is amazed by. He's seeing skyscrapers for the first time in a world that has moved on, as they call it. And like I said, it's post-apocalyptic. Skyscrapers and cars and planes. And he's just blown away and flabbergasted by all of this. And, you know, a resource such as paper is so scarce and sacred in their world. And he comes over and sees people just throwing away newspapers and stuff. And he's almost horrified by it. Uh it's a, it's a different take on it because we're in the alternate reality for most of the story and only get glimpses of our own reality throughout. Uh, and, you know, in the show notes, we talked about some of the points we'd like to make. You know, does this alternate reality affect, you know, the universe that would be the normal universe? Uh, this undoubtedly, yes, because they are questing in that reality to find the Dark Tower, which stands at the nexus of all time and reality. They're trying to protect it because if the tower falls, all of existence across all realities ends. So this is not just a quest to save one city or town or location, but to save everything. So that, I mean, that answers that bullet point that we had. Uh, you know, <laughs> is uh, this alternate reality a better place uh, than our normal universe? I would say absolutely not. Uh, you put it post-apocalyptic and, you know, uh, there, there are mutants and and you know evil creatures and stuff because King was really inspired by Lord of the Rings. So there are monstrous characters, there are vampires, there are mutants and and all the like. Uh, it's not a great place to be. Um, you guys have any questions, comments on all of this? I think I'm the only one in group that's read it. Well, no, I mean I, I've looked at it quite a bit. Uh, so the Dark Tower, for those who haven't read it, is Correct me if I'm wrong, because I, but from what I've read of it, it is the nexus, to use his word, of a lot of King's works. It establishes that all his novels, or most of his novels, take place in a unified universe. universe. Yes, uh, it's the linchpin story throughout all of King's works. And there are allusions to the other works... Uh, specifically to It and The Shining and... Uh, uh, Salem's Lot, so on and so on. I mean, it really does bind all of his other works together, you know, in various different realities. So it, it is the most important work he's done. He considers it his magnum opus. And if you like The Stand, because that's probably my favorite, one of my favorite Stephen King novels, you will like The Dark Tower because the antagonist of The Stand, uh, Randall Flagg, is in fact probably the antagonist of The Dark Tower. One of the main antagonists of the Dark Tower, yes. Uh, so I think that, you know, we're going to see a theme, I think, with some of these alternate realities in that they don't, they're not necessarily better. They're, they've, they've taken things and turned them on a dime for maybe the worst for wear. And the Dark Tower is a great example of that. I know mine will be soon. Uh, but I want to go to Matt uh, because I think that you are going to establish something from a franchise that we have covered quite a bit on this show. I don't know ever what you could be talking of. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm actually going to be talking about the what used to be known and which I still call 
the Star Wars expanded universe, but ever since we got Jar jar now it's called <laughs> Star Wars Legends. And Star Wars Legends is a series of an enormous number of books. I actually don't know how many it is, but probably well over a hundred books. It's, it's legitimately probably over a hundred books. And this was, it's a very cohesive universe that takes the original trilogy of Star Wars is canon and expands out on all the stories of things before and after in parallel to. And there were some amazing stories that came out of this. There was Shadows of the Empire, which occurs in the interim between The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, explaining what was going on and the part of the setup for rescuing Han from Jabba the Hutt and getting information about uh, Death Star 2. It included... One of my favorite books of all time, no offense, Jay, uh, but The Courtship of Princess Leia. That was a good I made my parents buy me that at Books A Million as a kid. Even the cover with Leia looking like it was a romance novel wearing like the white low-neck dress, that was embarrassing <laughs> to buy. I did not care. I made them buy it for me anyway. It was awesome, even though the author forgets Luke's lightsaber color and calls it blue. And he was using a green lightsaber after Return of the Jedi, of course. He was probably thinking of Leia in that dress and got distracted. Well, who doesn't, man? (laughs) He might have been thinking of the myriad of, uh, well, I say myriad, the few kisses that Luke and Leia shared and got (laughs) sidetracked, but anyway. I gotta say, Star Wars Legends, uh, the expanded universe, made me love reading. It made me feel like I, um, you know, it gave me a world when I didn't feel like I had a lot of friends in school sometimes, and it made me love writing, too. Um, That being said, I haven't been sad to see it go. I've been very happy with all the new canon that's come out here uh, recently. Did you you read uh, Thrawn, Jay? I have it, and I have not been able to read it yet. I've been too busy with my own writing, and I've been too busy with, um, you know, the master's work. I'm working on my thesis. Um, I have been reading, um, of what I've read, my favorites have been Lords of the Sith and Dark Disciple. Um, Dark Disciple was amazing. Well, it was originally the end of the Clone Wars, right? That was going to be on a a cartoon. Yeah, it was going to be a story arc in the show. Mm -hmm. I I wish it had been because it was dark, it was uh, cerebral, and it was very, very well written. Asajj Ventress is just awesome anyway, so I I was all in when it came out. I mean, who's more awesome, Asajj Ventress or Quinlan Vos that put them together? Um, and Asajj was, uh, I mean, desirable. Like she was, I was like, shoot, I, I would want to be with her too. <laughs> Even though she may possibly kill me in the night. It, it, it's know. the, it's the raspy voice. That's what it is. Kind of like nine uh, tails, eh? Yeah, exactly. And you know, she grew some hair and by that time, um, I keep wondering and I keep test, uh, te- uh yeah, tweeting the author, um, Christine, she's, um, uh, I keep wondering where Asajj Ventress got her yellow lightsabers in that book. Yeah, they never really did touch on that, did they? Oh. Well, and, and now in the new canon, the only thing I've really hated is this idea that uh, lightsaber crystals, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, the Wait. color is now determined, yeah, by the Force user's alignment. Well, it was kind of a cool way to explain why Ahsoka's were white after she got her new set, but... Oh my god, you can't just ask lightsabers why they're white. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't ask. They supplied the answer. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it was an answer I never wanted, because, (laughs) I mean, for years now, we've just accepted you find the crystal and that's the color. Why did it have to be more than that? So, so here's the thing that, that gives me trouble. Sam Jackson. Okay. What the hell alignment is purple? <laughs> uh, have you seen Pulp Fiction? <laughs> What's well, your alignment? I, in the it's Legend the story, there's a, a, there's a great comic. Um, there's a great <laughs> there's comic a where he finds his lightsaber crystals, actually. So, uh, one, one of the series within uh, Star Wars Legends that I, I greatly appreciated... Uh, 
as well as a young adult was actually uh, Kevin J. Anderson's works, uh, specifically the Young Jedi Knight series. It was, it was about ten or so books. Uh, I don't know if any of you read them. Those brought me to the dance, my friend. I I I found that at least among my circle friend, my very limited, very nerdy circle of friends growing up, that it was honestly kind of a formative experience because it brought a lot of people into it. It brought a lot of younger readers and helped them kind of move into adult fiction. And it's great for literacy. And, you know, uh, Josh still is, and I formerly was involved in the work of assisting and advancing the education of the public. And getting people to read of their own free will is a pretty big thing for literacy, which in turn helps a culture, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I'm only backed up by things like science. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that pes- pesky science. Oh, yeah, always getting in the way. And it's just, it's really important to have that. And I think the uh, the Star Wars Legends, especially with the young adult ones like the Young Jedi Knight series serve an important value in that. And and Disney can deny it all they want, but you know they got the ideas for the sequel trilogy based off the Solo twins in the Legends book. Absolutely. No question. Especially Kylo Ren and Jason Solo. Same character. They should have... I I went into that film expecting it to be Jason Solo. That's where I was with it. Right? (laughs) Like, when he called him Kylo, I'm like, you're going to get another bleep, Josh, I'm sorry. I'm like, who the f*** is Kylo? His name's Jason. And then we find out his name is Ben, which makes no sense to me because Leia and Han really had no big connections with Ben Kenobi. Didn't Luke have a Ben Skywalker son? He he did indeed, which makes perfect sense that Luke would name his son Ben, but why would Han and Leia name their son Ben? I mean, if you you want to stretch for it, I mean, if it hadn't been for Obi-Wan Kenobi intervening and picking him as a pilot... He would have never met Princess Leia if you want to reach for it. But well, I mean, you can find reasons, but they just didn't have the same connection. Leia, I don't think Leia even sh- actually met him. She saw him from a distance when he got hacked down by Vader, if I'm correct. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think that's it. Of so. course. Um, now, th- I think the best reason would be that the- he was the reason that Padme was saved and got adopted by her father, Bale. Hey, why well, not name him Bale? <laughs> If, if we if we want to pursue that logic, then maybe they named him Ben because if it hadn't been for Obi Wan Kenobi being such a Jedi, Anakin would have been such a Jedi, and you know, given into his feelings. Hold on a and second. Then now. Leia never would have been born. You know what? With Hayden Christensen playing him, he was going to be a Jedi anyway. It doesn't matter who trained him. <laughs> we being you apologize for all the bleeps that you've just heard. <laughs> There's a great a great series of new canon comic books called Anakin and Obi-Wan I'd highly recommend. Um, this is new canon, and it showed that Anakin was being trained by Palpatine all his life. Oh, nice. Um, very, so, like, very subtly. You know, Palpatine was Chancellor, and he would send word to the Jedi saying, I would like young Skywalker to accompany me on an errand. And he would spend that time just, you know, subtly poisoning his mind, you know, very insidiously. Well, they they kind of did that throughout the uh, Clone Wars animated show as well. Uh, and I yes. think they did – that show did such a good job of uh, telling the story that the prequels could not do apparently. And, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so. what, the pre- what the prequels should have been. So uh, if you all don't mind, I'm going to twist the knife just a little harder here and – how did we know those orders were coming from Palpatine and not his true master, Darth Binks? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, no, so all I want in the next film is a simple thing. I want the uh, Galactic Republic to establish a uh, something to honor Han's memory. Uh, because he was all about the fast ships, I want them to bring the fastest pilots out and have a, a race around a system, and the winner will receive the coveted Solo Cup. 
<laughs> what if they named the flagship of the Republic after Han Solo? No, I like the Solo. Can, wait, can, can we talk about, uh, you know, <laughs> since we're on the subject of Han Solo, can we talk about the fact that in that prequel movie they're going to, uh, you know, reveal that that wasn't his real name? Yeah, I'm very, I'm kind of in denial about that. I'm hoping that turns out to be a fake somehow. Yeah. It, I would like to, you know, think so, that Disney see, won't screw Han up like Solo, that. The Han Solo trilogy, um, which was a prequel in the Legends book about Han's early life, he was definitely Han Solo, but worked under an alias. I'd be cool with that, That'd be okay. but still have his real name be Han Solo. His real name is Han Calrissian. Huh. Oh, no. no. Uh, I, I was going to say Rusty Shackleford. <laughs> and the King of the Hill reference Tamsarian. goes to... Yes, I was going to say, speaking of fates, Armin Tamzarian, JP. Uh, JP, be- you have the floor... Because we're, we're now talking about something a little bit different than Star Wars. JP, it's only natural. You're finally back. Take us to your happy place, Springfield. Yes, and uh, this is technically a alternate universe because this, this particular set of Simpsons stories requires you to believe that the Simpsons can age. <laughs> talking about specifically... <laughs> But more specifically, the stories where the Simpsons go into the future. Yeah, they are hilarious. The one that immediately comes to mind is Lisa dating the British guy. Yeah, the crystal crystal ball episode, yeah. 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 I love that one, Uh, especially because they keep hinting that Maggie's going to talk, but she's always interrupted. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they say, like, they're at the wedding, and they say, and now Maggie will sing a song, and she opens her mouth, and they're like, stop, stop the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they, actually, they actually carry that one through all of the episodes that take place in the future. Maggie still never speaks or almost speaks in each one. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Now, Josh, you can confirm nor deny in the episode where uh, I don't remember the name of the episode, but the one where Homer's uh, I think it's called do it for her or whatever. Doesn't she say like daddy or something at the end of that episode? Uh, okay. Um, there, there is an episode and I can't remember which one it is where her first word is good night, daddy or something like that. Okay. Um, by Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to, because I haven't watched in several years, I'm just trying to remember. No, Maggie I'm, has I'm, spoken I'm in the current timeline, and she's spoken yes. in Treehouse, but she's never spoken in the future. Correct. That's, that's what she, I was going to get at. Wasn't she voiced by James Earl Jones when she spoke in the, uh, <laughs> the Treehouse episode? I believe she was. Truly, this is a disturbing universe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to YouTube that later because I, I missed that one. Actually, in, in fact, my favorite sight gag from a future episode is um, the episode where Homer keeps dying over and over again, but Professor Frank is able to keep cloning him. They just keep going further and further forward into the future. But at one point, they, they show a scene of Maggie and Gerald, the, the unibrow baby, but they're both grown up and they're making out with each other. I thought that was just amazing. <laughs> But, but what I found interesting about uh, about the Simpsons future universe is that unlike a show that's been on for 30 years but no one has ever aged, uh, in the future they're able to actually keep a moderately consistent timeline and they keep bringing back characters that only ever existed in, in the future universe each time they revisit it. Example being Bart's Bart's girlfriend slash wife slash ex-wife, Jenda. That is a character that is unique only to episodes that take place in the future, and yet she's a very memorable character as like a a, a kind of dopey but punky blonde girl that is just... <laughs> Ideal for Bart. Ideal for Bart, yes. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> so, she has, so she has not been introduced in the main continuity yet. To my knowledge, no. I, I think so intentionally so. Yes. So when they when she does, we know they've run out of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what about the time she was voiced by James Earl Jones? Mm. Treehouse uh, Five. 
That was Maggie, not Jinda. Oh, sorry. It's right. okay. My brain was my brain was still on Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. This I'm, is, I'm yeah. thinking. I'm thinking about the question of when she spoke. I'm like, she's been voiced by like a bunch of different people because like. I know at the very least Elizabeth Taylor and James Earl Jones have both voiced her. Yes. <laughs> but I I think one or both were Treehouse episodes. Yeah, James Earl Jones is the Treehouse. Yes. Uh, so, JP, did, did, in The Simpsons' future, so you have the same characters in the future, but do they contradict each other? Because I, if I remember correctly, isn't there a future episode where Homer and Marge are separated and Homer's living in a, an underwater house? Yes. Yes, there is. And by the end of it, they they end up getting back together in that underwater house. But if... <laughs> yes, it, it's definitely a, a timeline with wrinkles, but it is it is much more consistent than the the Simpsons body of work in the, in, in the canon timeline. So since the name was mentioned, I do have to ask you, since you are a Simpsons expert, do you consider Armin Tar, uh, Tar- Tarkarian... Uh, Tamzarian. Tamzarian, thank you. Targaryen? <laughs> Game of is, Thrones? <laughs> is he, in your mind, canon, or is Skinner just Skinner? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I think the short answer is, in canon, he is Principal Seymour Skinner. Um, uh, the longer answer is, not only was he legally pronounced to be Seymour Skinner by the end of that episode... But they made a really sly nod to that moment by, in a later episode, Lisa's cat, Snowball 2, dies, and she starts uh, adopting pets after pet, each one dying shortly thereafter, and she kept naming them Snowball 3, Snowball 4, Snowball 5, and then she eventually goes back to a, a black cat that is identical to Snowball 2, and she... She says, you know what, I'm just going to save the heartache and call you Snowball 2. And <laughs> Principal Skinner walks up to her and goes, well, isn't that kind of cheating, Lisa? <laughs> Lisa? Lisa looks right back at him and goes, yeah, I suppose you're right, Principal Tamzarian. <laughs> you know, Matt Groening's writing style is so great. I mean, I, I know Indeed. this is off topic, but I think one of my favorite skits from uh, Futurama was the episode where they go to the lost city of Atlanta and uh, <laughs> and uh, Bender's underwater, and uh, then they find out that Zoidberg's house had burned down, and he's like, how did it happen? And Hermes is like, that's a good question. And then Bender's smoking the cigar right beside him, and he's like, that raises even more questions. And I just I laugh so freaking hard every time that scene pops up. <laughs> it is very clever. Uh, and speaking of clever, I want to introduce my alternate universe. I would say the OG alternate reality, if we're honest. The Star Trek mirror Abrams? universe. <laughs> Uh, Mirror Mirror is this is in the second season of the original series, and it establishes that there's this alternate parallel universe where everybody's evil because they're part of the Terran Empire, and Spock has a goatee, and women's uniforms <laughs> expose their midriff, and uh, everyone carries a knife and an agonizer if you're uh, nasty, and things are just really really bad. Uh, Star Trek carries the alternate or the Mirror Universe through its entire canon uh, of Prime set episodes. There are no Mirror episodes in Next Generation or Voyager, but there are three Mirror Universe episodes in DS9, and there's a two-parter in Enterprise that's two of the best episodes of the whole Enterprise run, where they actually encounter a ship from our universe that got lost in the Mirror Universe. Long story. Uh, But the, the Mirror Universe allows the writers to break the cardinal rule of Roddenberry, which is that Starfleet characters cannot come into conflict with one another in a normal situation. You simply can't. The writers of Discovery have said they've broken that rule, so they've already broken my heart. But oh man, uh, you're go- are you are you going are you going into it with a chip on your shoulder already? Uh, quite possibly. I'm I'm hopeful, but it sounds more like Battlestar Star Trek. But that's okay. We'll see. We'll see. But 
Star Trek is about they should be hope and working together, and that's the way it needs to be. But the mirror universe doesn't have that, so the characters can be as nasty to each other as anybody else because it's just the way things roll. Uh, yeah, but mirror, George Takei with the rapier is awesome. Yeah, DS Nine has given or the mirror universe has given us, like I said, Spock's goatee. It gave us Empress Hoshi from Enterprise. Wow. Uh, it that that gave episode, us... I must say, put the hoe in Hoshi. Ah, uh, see what you did there. <laughs> it gave us Intendant Kira. Uh, it gave us uh, O'Brien with an eye patch. Uh, and just so many other things that you would never see otherwise in a Star Trek uh, reality. So, the Mirror Universe. Uh, JP, I know you're, you're my Trek guy, but you're mostly Next Generation. Have you ever encountered the Mirror Universe in your viewings? It's been a long time since I have seen the uh, the Mirror Universe from the original series. Uh, the only thing I can that I think I remember from that, if I'm not mistaken, isn't uh, isn't Captain Kirk an angry drunk in that universe? Yes, he is. Most of, most of yeah. them are. So he he's play, basically he's Bill Shatner. If I can interject on the next generation, the episode parallels where Worf starts hopping around the universes. Yes. And at the end, there's like infinite enterprises that show up. The one that was originally going to fire on the Enterprise was going to be from the Terran Empire mirror universe. Nice. And they cut it for some reason. They um, should have kept that. But I did a great podcast with uh, Mr. Tony Todd a few weeks ago. And we talked about DS9 a whole lot. Um, he we didn't are not appear... worthy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? He, he did not appear in any of those Mirror Universe episodes. He did some alternate timelines, of course, with The Visitor. But we uh, just talked about how DS9 was by far the best series in our opinion. But I didn't like what they did with the Mirror Universe in DS9. And the reason being was they made it too complicated. Um, they, I, I just like the idea that it's an evil version of the regular characters. Yes. And in DS9, they tried to give some sympathy almost to the Terran Empire by saying they were evil because there was way much, there was way worse stuff out there in the Alpha Quadrant. And they had the, uh, what was the Klingon Cardassian Alliance had risen up like the barbarians to take down the Roman Empire. And they uh, had enslaved the humans, I think. Yeah, it's really complex. I mean, DS9 never shied away from complexity, which made it work for the series as a whole. But honestly, if we're talking just Deep Space Nine, my favorite alternate reality is Far Beyond the Stars. Uh, which is, uh, I know not all of you in know the, in titles. The 20th, in the yes, 20th century, where right? Where Cisco yes. was a writer. Uh, a science he, fiction you know, writer. I think Avery Brooks deserved an Emmy for that one. I don't know why they didn't go for that. Um, yeah, he was the sci-fi pulp writer for the magazine. and uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, what was his name? Benny. Benny something. Benny something, yeah. Uh, but that – I love um, the, where they go back to the race riots in San Francisco. I, and The Visitor is amazing that Tony Todd deserved an Emmy for guest role for that episode. Well – so the story of that is uh, Tony Todd was raised by his aunt, and she – of course, Tony had already done The Next Generation. He had appeared as Kern. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of on a hiatus, and his aunt passed away, and he described it as he had just withdrawn from the world. He had almost entered an alternate reality of his own, and then the script for The Visitor showed up at his door, and he said that was his sign. It was, hey, you need to get back in the world by getting into this alternate world. And it was by far, you know, his most memorable appearance in Star Trek. Um, probably some have argued that's the best episode in all the Star Trek series, actually. Well, it's, I, I think Star Trek has always had two components that make it so good. It is uniquely science fiction in that it actually uses scientific concepts to explore things, but it also has such in-depth emotion and relatability because these are, you know, humans, these are us just a couple of years down the line. And The Visitor has this, it is uniquely science fiction because that concept could not work in any other genre. But the emotional connection to the father-son relationship between Jake and Benjamin Sisko, it's, it is universal. And Tony would not have been cast in that episode were it not for the fact that Cyric Lofton, who plays Jake, 
they could not get the old man makeup to be believable on him. They could, he was too young to look 75. So they said, we need another actor to play older Jake, and Tony was their first choice. And, and I thought that was a great choice. <laughs> absolutely well done. If you ever yeah. talk to Mr. Todd again, please give him our best because uh, I love we'll, all of his we'll work. Ta- we'll, we'll, uh, we'll share this podcast with him. He loves to hear uh, you know this kind of stuff. Awesome. Um, he, yeah, he's, another, he's amazing. Uh, yeah. I loved him as the Herogen in Voyager. <laughs> okay, we, we talked about that too. Um, he said that that was by far, in all his Star Trek appearances, was the most treacherous costume and makeup he ever had to do. Um, <laughs> because not only did it take so many hours, the uh, bodysuit, the armor, he had to give them a 20-minute warning ahead of time to go to the bathroom. Oh, and he, he said to me, he's like, how many people know 20 minutes before they have to go to the bathroom? I, I don't know about you. I can't. <laughs> so that's why the Herogen are so angry. They can't go to the bathroom when they want to. I, I'd be angry. I don't know. Mystery I love... solved. Well, no, you, uh, <laughs> hold on. You can always go to the bathroom when you want to. It's just not always appropriate. Well, <laughs> well I, I like the opening scene of Iron Man um, 2. <laughs> I like Voyager more than the next guy, and the Herogen were probably my favorite species in the Gamma Quadrant. They're a fascinating Aside from the bunch. Borg, yeah, we'd already seen the Borg. They're, yeah, I think they're my favorite new race in the uh, in Voyager. But we can—that's another show. Maybe we can have you back on on that because uh, we're actually doing a, a special in a few weeks on Star Trek captains. Uh, uh, but that's the Mirror Universe. There's other alternate realities in Star Trek. You know, Visitor, Far Beyond the Stars. I have to shout out to the Inner Light. And JP, I prob- you know you've seen this episode, right? Where Jean-Luc Picard lives out a whole life because of a probe. Yes. Uh, that one stands out as one of Patrick Stewart's best performances of the whole series. I agree. Uh, so, I mean, we there's so many amazing alternate realities in Trek. That, but the Mirror Universe is, of course, the one that stands out. Uh, I gotta, but, the only problem I really have with the Inner Light, as great as it was is that would have messed Picard up forever. Yes. You know, he could not have just carried on with his daily life immediately after that, because he lived out an entire existence, didn't he? He did. Of course he, he can. He's British. <laughs> <laughs> Still well, for that. We see. don't know how much he remembered uh, truly, but then when he starts playing the flute, and he keeps the flute in his ready room in his quarters, the Russican flute, uh, he does remember. And I'm amazed that they never explored how much it would have messed him up later on because they do in other series like DS nine's more serialized, but they do mention how much dissimulation would have affected him and they did affect him, but they don't bring up how much that experience changed him. I mean, it's, it's similar to the concept when they, with O'Brien where I believe it was O'Brien where he was charged with a crime. And in that universe or in that planet, the way they punish people is they implant memories of years of incarceration rather than actually incarcerating you. Yeah, that's a that's a very dark episode. Absolutely. Um, the, the crew called those type of episodes O'Brien Must Suffer. <laughs> just several times a season they would have an episode where O'Brien just really gets the crap beat out of him physically or mentally, whatever. And that was the worst one. It was, it was very dark. It dealt with suicide. I mean... Um, some crazy stuff in that one. And then Absolutely. it turned out like it was all a figment of his imagination, but it doesn't matter. It was real to him. Just, Precisely. Uh, on, a, on a related note, um, have any of you four seen the uh, show Hell on Wheels? Yes. Uh, he's uh, what's, his, what's, the, what's the actor's name? Colm Meany or Colm something Meany. like yeah, that? Yeah, Meany. He's uh, one of the Durants on that show, or the, the, one of the main guys. He's yeah, he, he's a, yeah, he's really good in that show. A good villain. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> and he's, he's such a teddy bear on Star Trek. Not in Hell on Wheels. No. He's also a great dad, and I think um, Keiko, uh, played by, I think, uh, okay, I'm forgetting her actress Rosalind now. Rosalind Chow. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Mm-hmm, absolutely. O'Brien did well for himself. <laughs> I, I thought she was out of his league. She was. <laughs> but maybe transporter operators are the, uh, the, the job that everybody thinks is sexy. Uh, I mean, it, I don't know if it would be the best job because that's where you're having the accidents all the time on the transporter. Yeah, not a good. That was thing. how they. That was how they first traveled to the mirror universe in the original um, yes. episode. Yes, they it. got yes. stuck in an ion storm. Now there was an episode. There was not an episode of the Next Generation, but there was a book 
of Star Trek Next Generation with the Mirror episode, uh, Mirror Universe. Yes, there was. Yeah, and they met the Picard counterparts and the Data counterparts and all that. And I think there's a comic series now with it. There, there are. And honestly, Data's counterpart is Lore. <laughs> nice. Uh, we should have already met him. Uh, but I do want to. We're getting uh, the toward the end of an hour, so I wanted to briefly mention a few honorable mentions that we didn't go as in depth with the Wa- Watchmen. Uh, and V for Vendetta, because both of those are alternate histories of real historical fact and completely overturn it. And I, I honestly, I think that Outbreak Mutiny fits into that canon. Obviously, Outbreak Mutiny isn't nearly as uh, graphic, no pun intended, as, <laughs> as Watchmen or uh, usually they are intended on this show, but not there. Uh, Outbreak Mutiny isn't as graphic as Watchmen or V for Vendetta, but the same kind of idea. T- twisting the real history a little bit. So I do think, Jay, that you fit into that canon. So well done. Um, also, Fallout, uh, alternate reality of alternate history of, of, in video games. Kingdom Hearts, alternate reality for Disney characters. Uh, so that needs to be mentioned. Uh, DC's Red Sun universe. What happens if, if Clark Kent or, or Superman, Kal El, crash lands in Soviet Russia as opposed to Kansas? I really do love that counterfactual, of course. Uh, I love Neil Gaiman's take on Marvel in the 1600s. Uh, so there are so many alternate universes, and we probably can go into more depth with them. But I wanted to give uh, we wanted to give us a good roundabout of our favorites uh, that we could mention today. I have one honorable mention I'd like to throw out there real quick. Sure. Amalgam Comics. Oh, I love those. The crossover DC and Marvel with combining Captain America and Superman was so patriotic it hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So my favorite was Dark Claw and Iron Lantern. Nice. Iron Lantern was pretty open. Are these available in print anymore, like in reproductions or no? I think you can find them somewhere. I don't know. Um. I'm aware of them. I've never read any of them. So uh, I'm going to go around and ask each of you, since we already know your favorites because we all said our favorites, I'm going to ask one final question to each of you about alternate realities. And it can be very quick or as long as you need it to be. Uh, Matt, I'll start with you. We know that Deadpool is your one of your favorite characters. Would you consider the Deadpool comics to be in the Marvel canon or an alternate universe? I think that uh, the primary Marvel Universe is Earth-616, and I find Deadpool's existence to be, to an extent, incompatible with Earth-616 because of his awareness of his position as a fictional character, which uh, they, they actually, is something they kind of indirectly address in uh actually in Deadpool kills the Marvel universe because as he's going through killing the Marvel universe professor X finally catches up to him and looks into his mind and looking into Deadpool's mind reveals to professor X that they're all comic book characters professor X starts crying and it breaks his brain so badly that he dies the the sheer weight of the knowledge literally kills Charles Xavier. Wow. So I think that awareness is incompatible with being canon to Earth one six six one Earth six one six. Ah, my my words are not working well today. <laughs> <laughs> but he's still an amazing character. He's a lot of fun to read. Absolutely, uh, J- <coughs> JP. I know that yes. you have seen Gotham. How does Gotham compare to the standard Batman story? Would you consider Gotham to be an alternate universe compared to the standard canon for Batman? Um, let's let's be real about it. Uh, (laughs) The series Gotham is a complete and total bastardization of the origin stories. That being said, it is an amazing standalone story, and I, I, I would say that it, it certainly is an alternate reality to the normal DC universe. Yeah, I can't abide by Gordon without a mustache. Sorry. That's true. 
We're abiding by Alex Trebek without one for years, so and, uh, don't and get me started. <laughs> when I was on the show, he grew it back. When I was, I was on a show where he had it. So yes, this is true. He uh, was. Yeah, Jay. If you didn't know, I was on Jeopardy in 2014. So oh, I need to see footage. Yes, it. Well, it's. I think it's on. Some of it's online. I made Alex. I made Alex Trebek say no. His father discovered Uranus. Oh, you send, <laughs> that, to you, you send that to me right now. I just want you to know that uh, Rachel actually found an article online about Jeopardy where they were complaining about building entire categories to plug something else on the network. And as their example for why it's a waste of money was the video of you sweeping the entire NFL category in under a minute. this category cost nbc at least thirty thousand dollars this is how fast one contestant swept the category and got it off the air (laughs) it's like a one minute clip of you taking the whole category just back back to back to back to back to back (laughs) i knew my other people didn't like sports but that's another story for another day uh ed what is your favorite alternate universe in anime Okay, Full Metal Alchemist. Oh, well, God, no. Uh, that's tough. It's either that or it's Cowboy Bebop, because the whole uh, Western space race kind of thing, that's that's an amazing one, too. Uh, I'd say it's a tie between uh, Cowboy Bebop and Full Metal Alchemist, just off the top of my head. And we will be hearing more about anime in our next episode, am I not wrong? Oh, you are not wrong. I've been, <laughs> wait- I've been waiting for this. Uh, and Jay... I know that you're a wrestling fan, so am I. Do you think kayfabe is an alternate reality? Yeah, in, in a way it is. It's definitely escapism. And if you get into the reality... But it's an alternate reality in the same sense that Friends or Seinfeld is an alternate reality. Yeah. You know, it's a stage play, it's a fiction. I refuse to believe that Seinfeld is not real. <laughs> it's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> Putty's jacket was amazing. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, so uh, alternate universes, uh, I think we'll probably come back to them because a lot of people have their favorite alternate universes. We've established alternate universes on this show. We had Disney characters with the Hunger Games a few weeks ago. We've had characters lifting Thor's hammer that should never be anywhere near Mjolnir. Uh, Look at you, JP. Uh, And of course, we cast the Avengers with the U.S. presidents. Uh, so we have established alternate universes here. Which one of those is your favorite, or did we get the alternate universes wrong? Let us know. Our Twitter account is at B&Q Podcast. Our email address is bnqfeedback at gmail.com. And if you want to read our Big Nerdy recommendation, go to Amazon and find Outbreak Mutiny. The author's name is Jay Sandlin, and you will love it, and it will be a new favorite alternate reality for you. Uh, so I want to thank you all on the show. Uh, thank you, JP. Absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure. Uh, Thank you, Ed. Thank you for having me back. And Jay, it has been a real pleasure. You are welcome to come back to Big Nerdy Headquarters anytime you'd like. Let's do it. You guys find me on Twitter, if you haven't already, at jsandlinwriter. Um, You already told him where the book is on Amazon. And I want to invite you to moderate um, a debate uh, sometime on my show, hashtag who would win. Absolutely. Ooh. We will be there. All of us have different areas of expertise, as you could find out or figure out with this one. So let us know the topic, and we will be there. One of us will be gladly be we'll, there. We'll uh, talk about it. And Matt, thank you as always. But Matt, you have a solemn duty. In yes. all universes, the Gungan must die. Please, kill Jar Jar Binks. Well, Josh, tonight, Jar Jar Binks took a wrong turn, turned down a hallway on Naboo. That hallway found him permanently trapped in the Twilight Zone. Just took it full circle there. Yes, you did. Wait, whoa, whoa. You did not make Rod Serling narrate anything revolving around Jar Jar, did you? (laughs) No, I made Rod Serling kill the Gungan. Okay, okay. Uh, (laughs) Certain words should not be uttered from certain people's lips, and I, you know. (laughs) With that image in your head of Jar Jar Binks dying at a cause of all the things in the Twilight Zone, my personal favorite thought is that Jar Jar is... In black and white. 
Jar Jar is currently being consumed by the aliens that are 50 feet tall that think he's a Rice Krispie treat. Uh, uh, they're going to get such bad indigestion. <laughs> Pepto-Bismol for eating a Gungan. On that note, <laughs> thank you all for joining us. This is Josh from Big Nerdy Headquarters. Next week, Anime Gateways with Ed. We'll see you then.